if you got your Bible with you this morning, turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Be patient, we'll get there here in a moment. And first, just want to thank you for your grace. I'm continuing to battle some uh, irritation in my left eye. I've been battling an eye infection for the last couple of weeks. Thank you for those of you who have been praying for me. My right eye has been healed almost completely, but the left one's still struggling a little bit this morning. So my apologies for that. Hopefully the camera operators won't zoom in on me too much this morning. And just wanted to make you aware that I was not hitting the eye with a bottle rocket or a Roman candle or something. Not yet to this weekend. Oh, I shouldn't say that, right? Um, hey, I hope you are having a great weekend. So thankful that you're here worshiping God with us and growing in your faith with us. And we're going to continue in our series this morning, God's Prescription. God's Prescription. The idea is this, that God's word has a lot to say about every area of life. The inspiration for this series was a few weeks ago when we were about to go away as a family for a few days, go to a resort where the big attraction was going to be spending time outside in some pools and doing some fun things together as a family outdoors. And right as we were about to leave town, one of our um, uh, kids became uh, sick with an ear infection, and we, so we hustled and got him into the doctor, and, and they said, hey, it's an ear infection, here's the uh, antibiotic we're going to prescribe, and We've got four kids. My wife said, you know, is it possible that you could prescribe this antibiotic? It tends to do a better job at really nipping this in the bud. And the doctor said, this isn't your first rodeo. And she said, that, you're right. That one would definitely do a better job. Let's, let, let's write that one for it. And, and I heard that story and I just thought, you know what? The Lord began speaking to me through it. There are so many times in this life that we settle for a measure that the world has to offer when God's word would really deal with the issue. We settle for a measure of peace that the world has to offer. We settle for a measure of success that we can find in the world. We settle for a measure of something that the world has to offer instead of digging into the fullness of what God's word and the blood of Jesus intends to accomplish in our life, to really deal with the issues of sin, to really deal with whatever it is that's holding you back or hindering you from being and becoming the man or woman of God that God has called you to be or become. And then a few weeks later, about 10 days later, I began battling this eye infection, and same thing happened. I went to the doctor, and they prescribed one round of, of antibiotics, and then it just continued to get worse for a few days, and went back, kind of circled back, and they referred me, and, and they said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to up what we're doing for you. That, that's fine, but for what you're dealing with, we're going to bring, he said, we're going to bring out the big guns. And I, once again, the Lord just underlined it, said, there's... We, we can tend to settle for a measure of success or peace or whatever it is that the world has to offer instead of pressing into the fullness of what God intends to do in our life. And a couple weeks later, as I was still dealing with this, I said, God, I don't need any more sermon illustrations. You could just heal my eyes right now. He's healing them. Come on, someone say amen. amen. So we're talking about God's prescription. And just to quickly recap, in the first few weeks of the series, we've talked about God's prescription for power. That through a, a, a real-time, present-tense relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit, the Bible's real clear. He desires for every believer in Jesus to live a life that's empowered by the Spirit of God through a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Week two, we talked about God's prescription for peace. That peace is the operating system. It's the heart for every believer, every man, woman, and young person. That Jesus said, my peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives you. There's a measure of peace that you can find in the world, in the bottle or in the pills or the website or the person, but it's fleeting and it's circumstantial. And he said, my peace I leave with you. It implies inheritance. It implies that he came and he, 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 he fought the battles. He paid the price. He went to the cross. He made a way. He apprehended. He obtained peace. That He said, now I'm leaving this to you as your inheritance. It's my heart for you to live in and operate in the peace that I've secured, Jesus speaking. He has a prescription for power. He has a prescription for peace. Last week, we talked about God's prescription for success. That in Joshua 1.8, it says, if we are careful to, to live according to God's words, that then our ways will prosper, and then we would experience good success, the New King James translation says. And that we, we talked about how we must redefine the world's standards of success to become God's standards, but God desires for the people of God to prosper and be successful. We need Christian people serving as leaders and influencers and, and, and culture shapers today. God has a prescription for success. So if you missed any of those messages, let me implore you, encourage you, go back and listen to them. But today, the message that the Lord put on my heart a couple weeks ago that I've been praying intent, intently over is this, God's prescription for America. And this is not a political message. This is a biblical message. 
In the context of this message, I'm preaching it today on the 4th of July, but this is a biblical principle that would apply to any nation, tribe, or tongue, any place that will turn its heart towards God and begin to live out God's word. God's heart is to bless. That blessed is the nation, God's word said, whose God is the Lord. God has a prescription for the healing of America, for the restoration of America, for the peace of America, for the prosperity of America. There's a lot of opinions about what we should do or shouldn't do, and I'm telling you, just as in every area of our life, your marriage, your heart, your home, your family, your career, there's a lot of opinions and increasing opinions, varying opinions about how to do all those things and everything in between in our world, in our culture, but I am reminding us that the only thing that will serve as a firm foundation in any of those areas that matters to God and thus should matter to you is the very word of God. And we need a returning to the word of God. Listen, as I prepared this message, I felt the spirit of intimidation come against me. I, I felt the spirit of intimidation, and, 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 but the Lord just reminded me. He said, I have a heart for America. I have a purpose for America. Listen, you need to understand that the Bible says in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, well, let's just read it. It says this. It says, from, from one man, he, speaking of God, made all the nations so that they should inhabit the whole earth. And watch what it says. God marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. The New Living Translation of the same verse, chapter 17 of Acts, verse 26, says that God decided beforehand when nations should rise and fall, determining their boundaries. Listen, I, I'm just telling you, there's, there's a plan in God's kingdom for the United States of America, just like there's a plan for every tribe, nation, and tongue. But I'm telling you, I felt the spirit of intimidation that came against me, and I, I, I have a heart for America. Early on, when I had just come back to serving the Lord, I was a prodigal son, I felt the Lord speak something to my spirit that I didn't really see clearly, but I'm beginning to see it more clearly. And he dropped something in my spirit, and he said, I'm calling you, speaking to me, he said, I'm calling you, Thomas, to be a missionary to America. And I'm grateful that over the course of many generations in the, in the church here in, in America and in the West, we've, we've been exporters of the gospel. We've been resources of missions around the world on different continents. But here's what I believe is that we are at a tipping point in America where we need to begin to pray that God would raise up people to send across the seas to become missionaries to the United States of America. That's how far we're drifting from God. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm praying that God would, again, ra begin raising up voices and begin calling people to become strategically placed, to begin to preach the gospel as missionaries to the United States of America. We need God. America needs more than a politician, more than a party, more than an improved program or a new or unique program. We need a move of the power and the presence of God. We need a great awakening. We need a returning to God and to the Bible and to the principles of the Bible. That's the only thing. That's the hope for the United States of America and any nation that will call upon the Lord. Someone ought to say amen. amen. All right, so let's pray. Let's pray over this word. I want to ask you, would you open your heart? And as we're, as we're diving into the book of Nehemiah and kind of unpacking some powerful principles that I believe give us a prescription for revival and restoration and rebuilding the culture around us, I want to ask that the Lord would also speak something specific and strategic to your heart, your home, your marriage, your family, your situation, that God intends to come and strengthen all of those things. Again, the things that matter to God and thus should matter to us. So come on, let's pray. Let's pray. I'll pray corporately. Right where you sit, right where you are, would you pray, would you invite the, the presence of the Lord, the Spirit of God to speak to you, to quicken you, to remind you of some things or reveal some things in you? Come on, let's just pray it. Father, that's our prayer. Would you come and would you reveal your heart to us? We thank you, Lord, that you still have a heart for this nation. You have hope for this nation. That, Lord, there's no nation, there's no person, there's no marriage, there's no family that is too far lost or too far gone. The arm of the Lord is not too short that you cannot still save. If we would just turn to you, that's what we're doing in this moment, Lord. We're turning our ear towards heaven. We're, we're inclining our heart and our ears spiritually and physically, God, towards your word. For Proverbs 4.20 says, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. They are life to those who find them and health to one, one's whole body. Lord, we want to hear what you have to say today about every situation, every circumstance. Lord, anyone today who's hurting or wounded or weary in any area of their life, Lord, physically they're up against an ailment or a diagnosis, Spiritually, Lord, they're drifting or they're far from you. Emotionally hurting or relationally divided or disconnected. God, thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you that today in this place, in this moment, in your presence, because of your promises, which are found in your word, your desires to come and do what only you could do, heal and strengthen and restore, bring life, bring hope, bring joy, Lord, bring fresh faith for the future you have for every one of these precious men and women and young adults who are under the sound of my voice today in Jesus' mighty name. And come on, all of God's people said with a shout, amen, amen, amen. All right, Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, and again, what we find here is a, is a physical illustration that I believe points to the spiritual condition of our nation today. And that within this, as we dig in, we're going to read quite a bit of this chapter today. You're going to really kind of get an exegesis of the book of Nehemiah in a way that unpacks some of the principles that God used to bring about a restoration. And I believe that is what is possible. I have hope for our nation. Again, there's no nation, there's no marriage, there's no family that is too far gone. If we will not turn for, to the Lord, he is able. Someone ought to say amen. amen. So here's verse 1, chapter 1, Nehemiah. And it says, in late autumn in the month of Kislev in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, Nehemiah's writing, and he says, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. And the wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And again, a, a, describing a physical condition that now illustrates the spiritual condition of our culture and our nation. And it says, reading on, verse 4, chapter 1, when I heard this, Nehemiah says, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, and most times we get it in, we get it in inverse order. We tend to open our mouth and then kind of consider what God might have to say about the thing. Nehemiah got it right. He turned his heart and his ear towards heaven and said, Lord, what are you saying about the situation? Before he opened his mouth, he wanted to seek the heart of God. And it says then, after having wept and prayed and fasted and mourned towards the God of heaven, it says then he said, oh, Lord. And he's still focusing on God. He's still recognizing that God is the solution. God, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family have sinned. We've sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Again, painting an illustration of the culture we live in today. But he goes on and he says, now, God, please remember what you told your servant Moses, that if you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, in other words, if you go and you choose your own way and you begin to mute God from the equation and you begin to remove God from every place where he's visible or influencing the culture, he said, there's going to be a scattering, there's going to be a disintegration, there's going to be a decay of the society. But here's the good news. He says, but remember what you said. If your people in the midst of all that that's happening, a turning from God, a, a removal of the Bible and biblical principles and values from our culture, if your people will once again return to you. Watch what he says. He says, then you'll eat, even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I'll bring you back. I'll bring you back. I'll rescue you. I'll restore you, he says, to the place that I have chosen for my name to be honored. And reading on verse 10 of the same chapter, he says, the people you rescued by your great power, your strong hand, are your servants. Oh, Lord, hear my prayer. Please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. He, he says there's a lot of people, there's a lot of opinions, there's, a, there's an antichrist spirit that's operating, but he's saying there's still a remnant of people who are looking to you and, and trusting in you and, and leaning on you and, and believing in you that you're the hope for our nation. He says, listen to the prayers of those. And he says, grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. And it says, in those days, I was the king's cupbearer. We'll get into that a little bit more here in a moment, what that's all about. Nehemiah had a concern for his homeland. Listen, it's not popular today, and it's, being, it's under attack, the idea of patriotism. And listen, I'm just telling you, I understand that in, in this nation, in every nation, 
There are chapters of good and there are chapters of regret, but here's the thing, I am proud to be an American. And I, here's the thing is, we can be patriotic while also realizing and embracing there's some ways that we can do better and there's some ways that we can make some things right and there's some ways that we can continue to draw near to God, live out his word, but we can do all that. We can recognize the the ways that we can get better without throwing out the baby with the bathwater. We can remain patriotic. I'm proud to be an American. I'm grateful that God, according to Acts 17, 26, saw fit to call me to be born. Listen, you need to hear this today. If you're an American or if you are living in America, maybe you were born somewhere else, but you're here, it's by divine purpose. God doesn't make mistakes. You were called, you were appointed for such a time as this, the word of God says. There's a purpose, there's a plan. It's not random, it's not by accident. There's something that God has called you to, to be a part of the solution when many voices are amplifying the problems. He had a patriotic concern for his homeland, for his brethren, that moved him to prayer, that that moved him to action. Nehemiah sat and he wept and then he knelt and he prayed. And the most patriotic thing you can do on the 4th of July is to pray for your nation. Because again, it bears repeating, we don't need a better politician or a prince. I mean, we, we do need some godly people to step in the gap. But this nation will not be healed and this nation will not be restored with a principle or a program or a politician or a party. This nation will be restored and revived to life in Christ when the people of God hit their knees in the presence of God and begin to ask for a move of God's presence and a move of God's power and a returning to the word of God, which are the promises of God. That's the hope for the United States of America. Someone ought to say amen. Amen. It says, when I heard this, I sat down and went for, in fact, for days, It wasn't a passing thing. His his heart began to be consumed with the condition, the spiritual condition and the practical condition of his homeland in such a way that prompted him and caused him to present it before the Lord. I wonder if maybe today someone will grab a hold of or God will birth something new in your heart that will cause you to see some things differently and understand that it it is possible if we will pray, if the people of God will pray. The Bible says, if my people... If my people will humble themselves and and pray and turn from their wicked ways, what does God say? I'll hear from heaven and I'll come and do what only I could do, which is heal our land. Our nation needs a healing. And it won't be brought about by a politician or a program. It'll be brought about by the people of God hitting their knees in prayer. It'll be brought about by a great, great awakening. It'll be brought about by a visitation, by an outpouring of God's spirit, by a returning to God. Number one is prayer. Number two is repentance. In verse 6, Nehemiah took responsibility for some of the ways that people had turned from God. He wasn't just pointing the finger outwardly. He was taking responsibility inwardly. And he says, I confess, we've sinned against you. Even my own family and I have sinned. We've sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, regulations you gave us. And there are many things that people are pointing to today. But what I mentioned earlier is true, that the, the United States of America has been the great exporter of the gospel, the resourcer of global missions in many ways. But here's the thing that unfortunately has also become true. Now we're the number one ex- exporter of adult content and X-rated content. And I might point the finger at some other people who are swept up in it and caught up in it and profiting from it, except I know the condition of my heart and the standard that Jesus came and established. And so I can't just point the finger at other people. I, can, I have to say, God, would you, would you uh, forgive us? We have sinned as a nation. Because in some way, some small way, I've been a consumer of some of those things. And I'm just telling you, we, we missed the mark. We, we must repent as a nation. For a nation to be restored, for revival to be revisited, repentance must become something that we challenge and stir the people of God to, and we challenge our culture to. Repentance can no longer be a bad word in church or a word we tiptoe around. We must call people to repentance. Lord, we're sorry. He's saying, we, we're, we've blown it, God. We've become so preoccupied and we've gone our own way that we've strayed from your words and we've strayed from your commands and we've strayed from your precepts. And he said, I'm sorry, God, even my own family, we've sinned. We must be people of prayer. We must be people of repentance on behalf of our nation. God's prescription for America also involves forgiveness. Forgiveness is the other side of that coin. 
And there are many voices today that are stoking the fires of division. And I'm telling you, we need voices from behind a pulpit like this and from within the pews of God-fearing churches and in the communities beginning to not stoke the flames and the fires of division, but beginning to introduce the concept that Jesus has made a way that even if it really happened, even if it was really hurtful, even if it was really painful, there's a grace that you can apprehend from God to extend forgiveness to someone who really hurt you. And this is a strong statement, but it's true. There's not one pain, there's not one problem, there's not one historical grievance that is beyond the mandate of the believer to extend forgiveness. I'm telling you, there's not one thing you could tell me that God's answer wouldn't be repentance and forgiveness. When we forgive people, I don't know who needs to hear this, this is for someone today. When you forgive that person, it doesn't make what they did right. It just makes you free from having to carry around the burden and the weight of what it was that they did or they said or that they didn't do that you needed them to do. I mean, I'm talking about real things. There are some real chapters of the history of the United States that we should be repenting of, but we also have to introduce the concept of forgiveness. Our nation will never experience healing in racial context or social context if we don't challenge people to to be people of forgiveness. Again, it really happened. It was really unfortunate. Forgiving them doesn't make it right. It just makes you free. And here's the other thing that it does is it shifts the burden of responsibility for justice off of your shoulders and out of your hands into the hand of Almighty God. And let me just tell you, he could do a better job than I can do. We've got to be a people of prayer. We've got to be a people of repentance. We've got to be a people of forgiveness. Number four, we've got to be a people of selfless service, and now we turn the page to chapter two. And Nehemiah had closed chapter one by saying, I, I, for I was a cupbearer of the king. And here's the thing is, it was a job of prominence and prestige. And don't forget that Nehemiah was actually introduced into slavery and captivity, but he had served and he had trusted and he had prayed and God had promoted from the midst of slavery and oppression to a place of prominence, and God did that all throughout the Bible. And so Nehemiah has been promoted to a place of prominence in the court of the king. He's the cupbearer to the king, which in effect means he's the right-hand guy of the king. He's privy to all the conversations. He's entrusted with all the interactions. He's always there by the king. That's the place of prominence that he had, a place of comfort. It was always easy, I'm sure. Nothing is that's worthwhile. But he was in this place of comfort, and yet he didn't allow that to keep him from stepping out and into the purposes of God for his life. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, early in the following spring, in the month of Nisan, and remember, it actually gave the, 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 the month of the time that Nehemiah heard about the condition, the spiritual and physical condition of his homeland. And so now we find ourselves about five months later. So Nehemiah has been mourning and praying and fasting and mourning and praying and fasting and seeking God on behalf of his nation for about five months. And, and now it says he was serving the king as wine. And catch this, this is a powerful revelation and concept. It says, Nehemiah had never before appeared sad in his presence. This was the very first time. How many years had he served in the house of the king? And maybe, here's the thing that I want to encourage you with. It doesn't mean that he didn't have days where he felt sad. It didn't mean where he didn't have days where he had legitimate reasons and excuses to perhaps show up to work with a bad attitude or a grumpy countenance. It just means that he made a decision to take those real things, real obstacles, oppression, and challenges, and present them in the presence of God on his way to work and say, God, when I show up in that situation, I want to be part of the joy of the Lord in that place. I want to be a salt and a light. I want to I trust you for the, for the things that are really going on behind the scenes in my life. And when I show up in that workplace, come on, I don't know who I'm preaching to today. I'm committed and I'm dedicated to having an upbeat, optimistic, positive attitude, a can-do a, a posture. I'm going to be part of the solution instead of the problem. And listen, it's important because it's part of what we're about to read. It was part of the key that unlocked the heart of the king. It says, this was the first day after many years on the job that I had ever showed up with a countenance that would cause the king to do what he was about to do. And he asked Nehemiah, he says, why are you looking sad today? He said, you don't look sick, not physically. He said, you must be deeply troubled. What's going on in your heart? And it says, then I was terrified. This was not easy for Nehemiah to step out in faith. It's going to take some courage, people. And, and it said, but I replied, long live the king. 
How can I not get sad, be sad, for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins. The gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king asked, well, how can I help you? Watch this. This is powerful how the Bible just kind of sneaks this in, but there's something so profound within it. Watch what it says. It says, Nehemiah says, with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied. So Nehemiah was even in that very moment. I think he realized after four or five months of praying and fasting and mourning, he realized this is the moment I've been praying for. This is the moment that I've been saying, God, what's my part? What can I do? What can we do? And he said, this is the moment. And watch, even prayerfully, how, what does that look like? I, I doubt that he said, hey, King, can you pause and excuse me for a moment while I have a deep personal time of prayer right here about my response? I think he's living out what the Apostle Paul would later challenge and charge each of us to do, and that's pray without ceasing. Every response, every moment, every interaction, every reaction done prayerfully. God, my, my, not my own will, but yours, your will be done. I want your heart for the matter. And so I don't know how it looked or sounded, but maybe right there the king said, what can I do for you? And right there in that moment, Nehemiah just said, Lord, give me favor as I answer. Lord, give me favor as I answer. I can't do what I'm, what I'm about to step into. I can't do in my own strength. I, I need you. And, and it says that he, he with a prayer, with a prayer, he answered, he replied to the king, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah, my homeland, my nation, to rebuild the city, the capital city where my ancestors are buried. And he goes on and he asks for letters from the king which would ensure safe passage through some of the provinces that he would have to travel to make it back to his homeland. He was so audacious, he even asked that the king would provide some of the resources that would be needed practically for the rebuilding and the restoration of the city. And we find in verse 8 that it says the king granted all of his requests. Watch this. Why? Because the gracious hand of God was on me. It wasn't because Nehemiah was the smartest guy in the room. It wasn't because Nehemiah figured out the formula for what to say or how to say. It was because he had spent time with the presence of God and he realized that the hand of God was upon him. And I'm just telling you, there are some of you that, you that God is calling you in this season to a place of prayer and the presence of God, a place of revisiting the promises of God, and it's going to give you a boldness that's clothed with humility to once again or in a new way begin to realize I'm going to be able to step out and step up and step into some things that God's called me to do my part to rebuild and restore our culture, not because I'm the best one, not because I'm the one that's most educated, not because I'm the one that would be picked out of a crowd, but because I realize that the hand of the Lord, the grace of the Lord is with me. Yeah, come on, someone ought to give thanks for that. That's, that's God's heart and will for you. Because the gracious hand of God was on me. The hand of God is on you. The hand of God is on you. Come on, if you'll turn to God. If you'll look to God, the hand of God, he's looking. He's looking. He's looking for someone whose heart will become broken by some of the things that break his. For, for someone to say, Lord, what matters to you now matters to me. And the grace of the Lord was upon Nehemiah. And now he's stepping into a new season of purpose and selfless service. And listen, obviously, it goes without saying, I mean, we've underlined it and underlined it again that we must be people of prayer. Ne Nehemiah, he, he sat down and wept. He knelt down and prayed. And then he stood up and served. And I think that's the right order in which to do it. Lord, my heart, let my heart be grieved by the condition of our nation. The, the moral decay, the spiritual decline, the turning away from God. I mean, I'm telling you, I, I'm filled with hope today, but I'm also at the same time deeply concerned about the direction and the, and, and the, and the trajectory of our nation for my children, for your children, for their children, for our great-grandchildren. I'm just telling you, I believe that this, in this day, it's such a time as this, God is calling us. He's letting us see some things, not so that we can just only pray or do religious things. It's important to do those things. Again, I'm underlining that, but there's a time where we also have to say, Lord, I'm stepping up, I'm stepping out, I'm speaking up, I'm I'm standing in the gap. Where is it? What is it that you would grace me and call me to do in my workplace or on that school board or in the city or county commission or, or, or whatever it is that God would grace you to that's been discovered in the presence of God, presented prayerfully before him that you would not do it in your own strength, that you would not do it for the wrong motivations. You're not doing it for power or prestige or influence. You're doing it just to fulfill and accomplish the purposes of God, which are always intended to be a blessing to the people of God. He, he sat down and he wept. He knelt down and he prayed. But then there was a moment where he stood up and he served. 
And I'm just telling you, I believe. I, I meant what I said earlier. It's not going to be solved by a politician or a program, but I believe that we must pray men and women of God back into positions of influence and authority in such a way where we look up and say, man, with everything that's going on in the opposition to faith and all the constructs of faith, how in the world did that man or woman who is an outspoken Christian get, get put in that position of authority? Because of the grace of God. And because the people of God hit their knees and began to pray. Like Nehemiah did. Come on, the spirit of Nehemiah is on someone today. So Nehemiah, has, he's sat and he's wept, he's knelt and he's prayed, he's now standing and serving. In chapter 3, as you turn the page, is the administrative account of all the families and the tribes and the administration of all the people that begin to go into motion. All because of one man. He had gone and he's inspected, he's, he's sought the king, he's obtained the favor, he's gone to the city, he's inspected the walls, he's inspected the city, you can read it for yourself there in chapter two and three. He, he's now begun to rally people to the task. And I'm telling you what now is a community a, 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 a effort and a community project and people are becoming invested and engaged in it all started with one man. And I'm telling you, all God needs is one man or one woman who will believe him that he is who he is and that he'll do what he said he'll do. And that person beginning to grab a hold of that and say, Lord, what seems impossible for man, I believe I've got a spirit of faith residing on the inside of me that believes that even if it looks impossible, if you're in the mix, if you're involved, if you're driving it, if you're motivating it, and if I'm gathering my strength from you, nothing's impossible for God. Amen. Don't wait to, for someone to the left or the right. I'm telling you right now, there's something that God, I mean, I'm just telling you, man of God, woman of God, just think about it. Just think about it. What if, what if an entire church community began approaching this with the kind of perspective of saying, I'll go. Lord, here I am. Send me. I'll begin to share the gospel in my workplace. I, I, I'll begin to pray for the lost. I'll begin to pray for the racial healing. I'll begin to pray for, for the division to be healed. I'll begin to pray for the blessing. I'll begin to pray for the election. I'll begin to do my part. So the rebuilding and the restoration is underway, and then we find ourselves in a situation that I speak into often, and that's this powerful principle that's immutably true, and that's anywhere in your life anywhere in our culture, anywhere in your marriage, your family, anywhere where there's power or potential or promise from God, you might as well go ahead and expect that there's going to be opposition from the enemy. Listen, this is actually good news for some of you. You wouldn't be in the battle in your marriage. You wouldn't be in the battle to raise your kids to know God. If there wasn't an enemy who saw on the other side who knew if, if you get connected to God, if those kids get discipled and raised up and sent out like arrows from a quiver of faith and they begin to serve the purposes of God, man, look out because there's going to begin to be some things that happen. The world is going to be changed. There's a reason for the opposition and it's the power, potential, and promise of God in your life. And they find the same thing to be true here. It leads us to number five, what will God's prescription for America, for revival, for restoration, for rebuilding is persevering faith. Because they begin to sense this opposition. And if you go and you read, I'll have to paraphrase some of it. We'll read some of it specifically. But it happens for numerous chapters as the building is underway. And we read a little bit about it in chapter 4 and verse 1 where it says Sanballat. And again, this is talking about a physical person. But now it represents a spiritual force that's coming to oppose and resist and bring intimidation towards the people of God and people of faith. Who are you to speak up and worry about what people will say? I mean, come on, they'll cancel you. And, and it says, Sam Ballot was very angry. Why? When he learned that they were rebuilding the wall. It says, he flew into a rage. He mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think that they're doing? Do they think they can really build the wall in a single day by offering just a few sacrifices? In other words, it's saying, do, they, do these Christians really think that the power of prayer can really change the heart of a nation? Do these Christians really think that one person, a man or woman of God, stepping in to serve on the school board can really make a difference? And, and reading on, it, it, it says, do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Listen, I'm just telling you, God is a restorer and a redeemer. He did it with my life. 
He's done it with your, your life. Many of you, if he hasn't done that yet in your life, that's, that's, that's your appointment today to discover the forgiveness and the love and the mercy and the goodness and the faithfulness of God in a way that takes your life from the ash heap and the rubble to a place of restoration, rebuilt by faith and by the goodness and the grace of God. Do they really think that they could do it? I mean, that's what he said. Do they actually think? I don't think I believe. I believe. And because I believe more than thinking, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know it's possible. I know it's possible. It might seem impossible. We, we take that concept from God's word and we kind of flower it up and we put it on a refrigerator magnet. It means what it means. The things that seem impossible with men are possible with God. Someone ought to say amen. There is hope for the United States of America and any nation that will return its heart towards God. And it happens one man at a time, one woman at a time. And they continue to work, continue to build, continue to restore. And it says in verse 6, at last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city for the people had worked with enthusiasm Fast forward chapter 6, verse 9, they're still under attack. It says, they were trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. They were trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. The work what, what work? The work of rebuilding, the work of restoring the fabric of the culture, the spiritual condition, the physical and spiritual walls. And it says, watch what Nehemiah responded. He said, so I continued the work with even greater determination. Greater determination halfway through the project and they're being discouraged. They're, they're sen sensing this discouragement. Watch, we see it. We see it. Nehemiah 4 verse 10, it says, the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired. There is so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. In other words, a spirit of intimidation was coming against them to say, it's too late. It's too late. And, and, and here's the thing is, was that true? No, it wasn't true because a couple chapters later, what you read is that they rebuilt the entire wall in 52 days. But in this moment, there's a spirit of despair. There's a spirit of discouragement. There's a spirit of hopelessness that's coming on them. It's too big. It's too much. It's too far gone. And I'm just telling you, as long as we've got Jesus, as long as we've got the word of God, as long as we've got the grace of God, as long as we've got the message of the gospel to present to people, a message of hope and restoration and redemption and newness of life, there is hope for this nation. Galatians 6 verse 9 says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Two more points and then we'll close. Number six, God's prescription for America. Number six is unity. Unity, unity. Listen, the enemy is working overtime to divide us along racial lines, along social lines. And listen, here's the reason. You say, why would that be happening? Because the enemy understands that what the Bible says is true, that a house divided cannot stand. A nation that's divided against itself cannot and will not stand. And there are spiritual forces that are at work in this. And listen, let me just say, I'm going to make a strong statement, but I want to encourage you with it. Be wary, because the voices that are stoking the fires and the flames, especially of racial division and social division, most times, most oftentimes, are the ones that stand to gain the most from it, to profit from it, or to receive empowerment by it politically. I mean, I'm telling you, you just gotta be careful what you're listening to. And see beyond the issue. There's, there's a spirit that's trying to keep us divided and at odds and, and, and missing some of the progress that we've already made, keeping us tethered to and attached to the pain of previous generations. We must repent and forgive. We must walk in unity. Watch what the Word of God says. It says how good, how pleasant it is when the people together live in unity. Psalm 133, towards the end of that, it says a few verses later, that's the place where God can command a blessing. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says, finally, brothers and sisters, at underlining something that says rejoice and watch, strive for full restoration. Encourage one another, be of one mind. Somebody say one mind. Live in peace. Colossians 3, 14, over all these virtues, there's a lot of good things and ways you can exhibit and show your faith and your love for God and for one another. But above all these things, put on love for one another, which binds you together in perfect unity. Galatians 3, 28 says, there's neither Jew nor 
nor Gentile. This is, there's nothing new under the sun. There's always been this tendency to want to kind of divide us along racial or social lines. And he said, there's neither Jew nor Gentiles, nor their slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one. Somebody say one in Christ Jesus. Man, Lord, would you raise up voices of reason, voices of wisdom, voices that have the Father's heart for all involved to bring people back to the table and have some conversations that don't divide us and cause us to, to deepen that divide, but bring the opportunity for you to do what only you could do, bring healing to our land. Number seven, and we'll close here, God's prescription for America, the restoration of the family. The restoration of the family. And here's what you need to hear and understand before we get into this, is that because there's such a strong attack against the family and against marriage, many of us in this room have been casualties of that war and here's the powerful truth is that there is not any situation or circumstance that is beyond the power and the goodness and the grace of God to be redeemed 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 that what the enemy meant for evil God can take it and if you'll submit it to him present it to him and trust it to him begin to learn the lessons of the past and begin to walk in the blessing of God towards your future there's a redemption there's a power there's a restoration there's a forgiveness there's a healing there is not any situation there is not any circumstance in family divorce or division or 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 or, or strife that I'm telling you today there's not anything that you can present to me that I wouldn't say that's painful but God can redeem that and he has a way, he'll take, he'll take the very mess of your life and if you'll present it to him, he'll turn that into your message. He'll turn your test and he'll turn it into a testimony. He did it all throughout this book and he's still doing it in the lives of people today. Someone ought to say, thank you, God. So, but we must agree that many of the things that are ailing our culture and our society and our nation go back to the denigration of the family, the decay of the family. Watch, it's, it's true in this passage, Nehemiah 4. Verse 12 through 14, watch what it says. It said, the Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, again and again. The enemy's persistent in this way. They will come from all directions and attack us. I mean, come on, there's a reason that your marriage and your family is under attack from all kinds of different directions because again, the enemy understands the power, the potential that, and the promise that's tied up within that relationship. And it says, so I place, watch what Nehemiah said. Again, he, they're being warned. There's an attack. I'm just telling you, there's an attack on marriage and family. If you haven't experienced yet, just buckle up. There will be a day where there will be an attack on your marriage and on your family. And, and, and he says, watch Nehemiah's response. So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed area, and I stationed the people to stand guard by families, armed with swords, spears, and bows. He didn't set them to serve together by, the, by rank or by file or by gift set or whatever it could have been that he might have kind of organized people. He said, I'm calling families to begin to stand together and serve the purposes of God and build the house of God and restore the walls of the city. I'm calling families to be families of faith and stepping in and standing together and linking arms. And it says families armed with swords and spears and bows. And, and watch, it says, then as I looked over the situation, I called together, again, again, calling, unifying. He's unifying. I called together the nobles and the rest of the people, and I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious, and watch this, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. It is time that we need to see faithful fathers and praying mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers fighting for their family on their knees in prayer. Will you stand to your feet? Stand to your feet. Let's, let's prepare to respond to the Lord and just pray for our nation, pray for one another, pray for our future, pray for families. And catch this. This is the last place, and then we'll close. We need faithful fathers. We need praying mothers. We need men of God who will battle for their homes with all their heart, put their hands to the fight. We need men and women of God who will pray and love and serve and sacrifice. Watch what Nehemiah says. He says, when our enemies heard that we became aware of their plans, we knew their plans, that God had frustrated them. Again, the plans to come and discourage and divide and destroy and to keep the work from moving forward. It says, when we heard that, that our enemies heard, and he said, we went back to our work. We returned to our work on the wall. And now fast forward down, verse 17, for time's sake. It said, watch what it says. It said, those who carried the materials did their work with one hand and held the weapon in the other. 
and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. And I'm telling you, man of God, woman of God, there's something powerfully prophetic about this. God's called you to go and do your work and, 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 and apply yourself to your trade and provide for your family with one hand, but also to be have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in the other hand, ready to fend off the schemes of the enemy and the fiery darts of the enemy. He said, we, I'm calling you to be a builder and a battler. You're going to have to understand as I'm building my life, as I'm building my enterprise, as I'm building my career, God's also called me to be spiritually in a position of fighting and battling for my wife and my kids and the kids that they'll have and the great grandchildren that I might never see. But their spiritual heritage and lineage will go back and trace back to this moment where I say, I'm taking a stand. I'm taking a stand. I'm a, I'm a builder and I'm a battler. I'm a worker and I'm a warrior. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not the weapons that the world says you gotta pick up. But they're mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. And the sword that the Lord has put in your hand is the very word of God. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God, the Word of God. Come on, we need a return to the Word of God. That's how families will be restored. That's how a nation will be restored. Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you're speaking to us. Thank you for the opportunity to be a part of a Nehemiah generation. Lord, first of all, I just want to pray for families. I want to pray for families. If there's a family, if there's a marriage that's in this room or within the sound of my voice online who's in a battle, you're right now, you're in the throes of the battle and the opposition. Lord, I pray right now that you would come and you would provide grace, you would provide healing, you would provide patience, you would provide, Lord, a strength, a hope, Lord, to be renewed for the opportunity and the space. I pray, Lord, for there to be healing. I pray that you would begin to soften hearts. I pray that you would cause for there to be a spirit of repentance and forgiveness to be extended one to another. I pray in that place where the enemy has come in and he's convinced people that there's a permanent divide, there's a permanent divorce, there's whatever it looks like in that situation. I pray today, God, that you would come and that you would stir faith, God, for the impossible things, what seems impossible to be possible with you. Lord, I pray for healing and restoration over marriages, homes, and families. I pray for redemption, Lord, where there have been things that have been unfortunate. Lord, redeem them for your purposes in Jesus' mighty name. And Lord, now let's begin to pray for our nation. Would you begin right where you are just to begin to pray for our nation? Father, we lift up our nation. And Lord, we pray that you would come and do. Let, let's, let's, let's live out. Let's Let's express right now what, what it looks like in Chronicles 7.14 to, to humble ourselves and seek his face and to turn from our wicked ways and to trust that he would come and do what only he could do, bring healing to our land, to the United States of America on Sunday, July 4th. Lord, we, we can't do it in our own strength. We, we need you. We can't strategize our way to healing and revival. We need you. We need you. Only you can heal hearts. Only you can mend the broken places. Only you can build back and restore and rebuild, Lord, the fabric of our nation. And we thank you for it, Lord. I pray that you would grace every man and woman and young person in this room to discover their unique role and your call and your purposes and your plans. Thank you, Lord. I, I pray, Lord, that young people, young adults, listen to me today. Listen to me today. You are a critical generation. There's a, there's a call. There's a mandate. There's an invitation from God to be countercultural, to stand against that voice that is trying to remove God from the equation of our culture and our nation. There's an opportunity that you have. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen this new and next and upcoming generation, Lord, which really is a now generation, Lord, to begin to find their voice and, and, and be motivated with compassion. Be motivated with compassion. It's what moved Jesus. We should be people of compassion, but we should also be people of conviction. And people of courage, Lord, I pray that you would grace us to be that very thing, that very people in this day, in this hour. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, for bringing hope and healing to our nation. Thank you, Lord, that what's impossible with man is possible with you. There is hope for the United States of America, and his name is Jesus. Someone ought to say amen and give thanks and praise to God. Now here. We're going to worship together one more time. We're going to get you about your 4th of July, but before we do, I mean, I'm telling you, this is the most important moment, and it's to give people the opportunity. We do it every week, regardless of what the subject matter is of the sermon, 
And that's give people an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Give people the opportunity to come home to God, to come home to a heavenly Father who is calling you and beckoning you and longing and yearning for you to come back to a relationship with him that transcends religion. Maybe you once knew God, loved God, served God, grew up in the church, you've just drifted from him. You're what the Bible would describe as a prodigal son or daughter. I was once right in that very place. Or maybe you've never given your life to God and experienced what it feels like to have, I mean, the weight, that weight of sin and the shame and the guilt and the condemnation that the enemy uses to try to keep us weighed down and, and tethered to our past and hindered from moving forward in faith. That's what God wants to come today through Jesus Christ and remove off of your shoulders spiritually. So if that's you, you're in either one of those camps or anywhere in between, right now is your moment of salvation. Don't wait, don't delay. Right now, lift your hand high towards heaven. It's the outward response of something powerful that's happening inwardly in your heart. These hands represent hearts. If you're online and you're joining us and that's you, I'm speaking to you. I believe it's powerfully important. You might even pull the car over or you're all by yourself in your living room. It doesn't matter. Stand to your feet, lift your hand. You're not responding to a preacher. You're responding to your father. Listen, if you lift your hands, you can lift them, you can lower them down. And here's what we're gonna do with the people. There are many people who raise their hand. I trust online several as well. And we're gonna pray this prayer with you, with you. We're not gonna ask, single you out and ask you to do it. And we do it for two reasons. One is because we quickly wanna just come alongside you and just help you to see in some small way man, there's a church family called Rev City Church and we want to come alongside you and help you and minister to you and pray for you and help you and encourage you and strengthen you. And, and if you fall down, help you get back up and keep moving forward towards the purposes of God for your life in a new season of fresh faith. And two, we do this every week together because corporately and individually, it reminds us that even as we're growing and maturing in our faith, we never graduate from grace. Everything that God could ever build in my life is all on the foundation of God's unmerited grace through the cross and the death and the burial and the risen life of Jesus. So come on, let's pray it with everything we've got. Come on, repeat after me. Father, in Jesus' name, I recognize my need for a Savior. And I thank you for sending Jesus to pay the price I could never pay, to make a way that I might have a new life and a fresh start. And Lord, I give you that life. I give you my trust. And because of Jesus, because of Jesus, come on, say, I'll never be the same. I will never be the same. And come on, put your hands together with all of heaven. Hey, come on, let's, let's rejoice and worship the Lord one more time together today.